0: For all of us here, uh, I just want to figure out how to introduce Barry Bannister, chief equity strategist at Stiefel Nicholas. Uh, you know, Barry, uh, when I mentioned uh, earlier uh, to Tom Keene that y- you were uh, coming on the program, he he kind of lit up a little bit.
2: He lit up a little
0: bit. He lit That's up great. a little bit. Yeah, I think that kind of he that was that was something that rang a bell with him. So I'm wondering, uh, how long have you been doing this?
2: I've been a strategist for about seven years, and then prior to that, for about 23 years, I was an analyst in the equity side, sell side as well as buy side.
0: So you've seen the cycles come and go?
2: Yeah, okay. quite a few.
0: Yeah, and uh, I use the word cycle uh, specifically, be, uh, and I, know, I think you know why, and I'm wondering if you would just describe where we are in the cycles that you pay attention to.
2: Yeah, Pam, one of the the things that we've differed on uh, from from the earliest days is that the Fed really began hiking in May of 2014 when what's called the Atlanta Fed shadow Fed funds rate bottomed at minus three. Uh, It's a complex calculation based on options pricing models, but what it really describes is the effect of QE rate suppression, forward guidance, twist, and other things the Fed did. So we've been in a tightening cycle for several years and I do think that at about a 2% interest rate on Fed funds, we will reach a point where it's just too much. But that's not going to happen in the next six to nine months. So I think the market looks pretty good to the spring of eighteen.
0: Well, until the spring of eighteen, what do you do? Just stay where you are right now?
2: We've been a big positive bull on the uh, reflation trade, uh, more so last year on energy. I was three months early on that. And then on financials, again, I was three months early. Uh, we've had a few soft months since the election, approximately mid-December, mm-hmm. as the fiscal house is trying to get an order. And it is very difficult. This is not an administration that thought it would win. So there was no government in waiting. And so things are in a bit of disarray. But I think things will get better. And uh, with the uh, clarity on that, the Fed's clarity that they've been giving, some growth abroad. I think things look good for uh, another move up in the reflation trade.
0: And that would include energy? Would that include financials?
2: It is primarily financials. Uh, obviously, banks. Uh, it's also the capital spending side of technology, a little different than the social media side. It's also, the, and that includes software, semis, and things like that, continuing or resuming the uh, run that they've had. It also includes industrial and some basic materials, although we have to be careful not to assume that the Chinese are going to employ a fixed investment model forever. Uh, they have to reduce that as a share of GDP. But generally, yes, it's a more pro cyclical, more pro global growth bet and i think it looks pretty good into the spring of 18
0: so 2349 for the s&p 500 right now mm-hmm. if you've participated and you're looking at it on an annual basis although i mean every it really makes no sense but uh you're up 5% what would you do
2: Yeah. One of the things about low interest rates is it can be two things. One, you can have a low rate because you're fearful of deflation. So what you have is a very low real rate and a very low inflation rate. And that's not necessarily It does help your multiples, your P.E. multiples, because you're discounting the cash flows at a low interest rate. But when you switch over psychologically from fear of deflation to a little more confidence in reflation, it's almost like a light goes on and you get the positive benefit of a super normal, very low interest rate. Uh, and as a result, you get a very, very high PE ratio. So we, we do think that the one hundred twenty-five dollar trailing twelve month twenty seventeen and P earnings can be discounted at a twenty multiple, which is a inverse of a five percent mid grade corporate BAA yield, and that puts you at twenty five hundred. So that's our target this year.
0: Well, all right, we're gonna we could write we're gonna write that down, and then we'll be able to see how that you know turns out for the re- for the rest of the year but barry you know uh, as i look over your notes and also uh, receive uh emails from uh, people who've followed your career and listened to you o- over the time uh they go back to let's say the post nine eleven uh world and you wrote about that what all the way back from 2002
2: mm-hmm. yeah in 2001 and 2000 i'd been writing about a a rotation into hard assets, which would be commodities and and to an extent real estate and gold and things like that, Um, and away from financial assets uh, in terms of relative strength. And the commodity cycle of 2002, roughly to 2015, oil, as you know, rolled over in 2015 with the OPEC price war and the Fed's somewhat premature attempt to exit and raise rates when the rest of the world was going to negative rates. So that tended to crash the price of oil as we saw in 2015. So the commodity cycle was 2002 to 2015, we played that. the cycle now, though, is uh, most of a post- debt deflation and a global rebalancing and deleveraging. It gets into very complicated global cross-border macroeconomics. And so I'm spending most of my time now, Pem, trying to be uh, more knowledgeable of macroeconomics, and uh, that occupies probably forty, fifty percent of my time.
0: so uh, so from that perspective, maybe you can share some of your more recent uh, uh, understandings. yeah, yeah.
2: well, I mean, one of the things that's going on is the Chinese savings surplus, which still exists, uh, has to find a home. It has to go someplace. If it stays domestic, it inflates bubbles, drives credit growth. If it's exported, it bids up housing prices in Brooklyn and uh, and uh, Vancouver and elsewhere, and Toronto, you name it. Uh, and uh, uh, So what we're seeing now is a push in this administration, which is I wouldn't classify it as mercantilist, but I would say that they're unwilling to have eat the surpluses, the trade surpluses of every other country in the world. So we're seeing a change in the global monetary order. This is a very big deal. It's on the scale of what happened in 1940s with the Bretton Woods Agreement. And the U.S. is no longer willing to be the dumping ground for the exports of all the other surplus countries from Germany to Mexico to China. And as a result, there's a political change afoot, and I think that'll gel over the next several years, and we'll see more of a balancing of uh, savings investment in each country domestically, uh, and that will reduce this role of trade, and we have to figure out what all this means.
0: That's a very powerful uh, statement. Well, the U.S. had, I guess,
2: decided uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to allow. First, it happened in Europe after World War II, Marshall Plan, and so on, that the U.S. would uh, be a source of, of, uh, of demand for their outputs, so that they could modernize and develop into capitalist democracies. Um, but then they did that in Asia with some of the Tigers, as you recall and I recall, because we've been around a while. In the 1990s, the Tiger economies. Um, before that, it was the Japanese and, uh, and of course. The Koreans and Taiwanese, but what's happening now is China, which is simply too big, is, has tried to follow that model, and it's been very disruptive. China is yep. no longer a currency manipulator. China was a manipulator 2000 to 2007 when they built up their reserve position.
0: Barry, uh, so- we got to we got to leave it there, but I look forward to having you in the future anytime. Barry Bannister, Chief Equity Strategist, Stiefel Financial, based in Baltimore, Maryland. Medicare and doctors. There are many surveys that have produced results indicating that doctors are foregoing entry into Medicare. They no longer feel that it would make financial sense. Joining us now is Dr. Chris Chen. He is the chief executive of ChenMed and they are a physician-led primary care facility and he joins us now uh, on the phone. Thanks very much for being with us uh, uh, Dr. Chen. Maybe you could just explain the role that Medicare and the reimbursement uh, practice of Medicare works a little bit and so that we can understand how the doctor fits in and some of the ways in which you are challenging conventional notions.
3: Hi, Pim. Yep. Um, So, you know, our practice primarily relies on Medicare Advantage um, which is a sub-segment of the overall Medicare um, population. And what that means is is that they, there's a premium that goes from Medicare over to a health plan. Um, the way that we're able to work with these health plans is that the health plan will then give us a fixed amount of dollars to manage a patient. And that really allows us to create really flexible and unique and innovative Models of care that can substantially improve the outcomes of patients.
0: What kind of pushback has there been inside the doctor community, if any?
3: Well, you know, any kind of change um, can be difficult. Today in the Medicare, there's the Medicare fee-for-service world. Um, You know, doctors are paid for, uh, you know, for volume. They're paid for transactions. Uh, The more patients you see, uh, the better you do. In our model, which is primarily based in Medicare Advantage, um, we've created what is a value-based care full-risk arrangement with health plans.
0: What does that? What does that what mean? Ho- because I just I want to understand where this came from, right? Because this this all has to do, I believe, with the rules from the Medicare Access and the and the CHIP Reauthorization Act, because that really was kind of something that changed the way doctors got paid, right?
3: Right. So. Yeah. Um, you know there there is something called Medicare Advantage, um, which
0: is a private, like which is a private it. system, as you said, in which you, the Medicare uh, recipient can have the premiums go to this private company, Medicare Advantage.
3: That's correct, and so there are many Medicare Advantage um, health plans out there. And uh, essentially, the, the premium dollar goes over to these health plans, and these health plans have to figure out how to improve the outcomes of patients and ultimately reduce costs, so that way they have some margin left over, right? And so what a lot of these health plans have done is they've gone out to physicians um, and physician organizations like ours to create novel, innovative models that can ultimately improve the the, the, the outcomes of these patients and subsequently reduce the cost so that way there can be an opportunity to create margin um, on that patient population.
0: What is different about the way you would structure your business having all of this information uh, if you had a kind of clean slate?
3: So you know that's exactly what ChenMed did. You know we noticed that um, about five to fifteen percent of the any given population within Medicare Advantage accounts for about 50 to 75 percent of costs. And so what we notice is this population tends to be low to moderate income seniors with multiple chronic conditions. And so what ChenMed sought to do was deliver you know, you know, these low to moderate income seniors concierge level care. Um, this is the kind of care that usually is only available to you know, CEOs and executives at large companies. And, and we are able to provide this level of concierge care at no additional cost to the patient. So if you're a ChenMed patient, what we're able to deliver them is instead of the average doctor taking care of 2,300 patients, our doctors only take care of 450. Instead of a, a doctor only spending about 13 to 16 minutes a, de, uh, a year with a FaceTime with a patient, our doctors spend about 168 minutes.
0: So how does all do, do this?
3: It, well, the way we do this Peel, is... Peel, give you, us, know, by,
0: uh, you know, reveal, the, pull back the curtain a little bit.
3: Absolutely. So, you know, by increasing access to care, by providing this really high touch, concierge level care that includes transportation, medications on site, specialists on site, and this high touch level of care, what we're able to do is significantly reduce the hospitalization rate. Today, we've published that we can reduce hospitalizations by 38%. And so, what happens is when you can reduce
0: hospitalizations, you substantially reduce costs. What would be an example? So I'll like, give, give us a patient example you know, and you, you, you know, paint the picture for us.
3: Wonderful. So I have a patient of mine.
0: Um, uh,
3: his name is, let's call him Mr. F. Uh, Mr. F came to me. Uh, he had been going to the hospital about five times a year because he has end-stage heart failure. Okay? His heart doesn't pump well anymore. Um, it's, it's weak, and he keeps showing up in the emergency room. Now, what I know is this is a patient that, you know, in general, in a normal, traditional, fee-for-service Medicare environment will be seen for 13 to 16 minutes a year of FaceTime. What I have done is I see him, and I will see him every single week, if necessary. And so initially, when I met him, he was actually in hospice. He was ready to call it quits. And, and when I, and, you know, after seeing him every single week, after providing him door-to-doctor transportation, after giving his medications on site, after um, having multiple conferences and coordinating his care with his other specialists, I took him from being admitted five times a year, of which each admission cost $20,000, to now he has not been admitted in over four years, and he's out of hospice.
0: And so, how and, do you, but then, how, but, uh, and not but, but, uh, uh, and your, uh, who pays you? How, how can you afford so, to do this? Right. So, this is perfect.
3: So, if, if a patient comes to us, right, if they, it, because we are actually taking the premium dollar, the, a, a Medicare Advantage um, health plan will offload the, a percentage of the premium, so a fixed amount of money to us. Right? And so, therefore, if the patient ends up in the hospital like, like Mr. F, five times, okay, and it's $20,000 every time they go to the hospital, I pay for that. But the beautiful thing is if I'm able to significantly reduce his catastrophic you know, hospitalization rates, then yeah, well, I'm going to benefit from that. And so what we found is this is a scenario in which if I can figure out a way to substantially reduce the most costly admissions for our patients – Patients win because they're not getting sick, but also we win because now we actually don't have to, you know, what, what that patient would have cost. It would have been, you know, five times at $20,000 uh, an admission, $100,000 a year. Instead of that, you know, perhaps that patient actually hasn't accrued any major catastrophic costs. So we actually are able to make money. And what's unique about ChenMed is that we are not able – not only can we do this in where we started, which was in South Florida, but we've been able to replicate this exact model across multiple practices in nine U.S. geographies. So, uh, you know, what we've discovered is this model of care is actually scalable. Hmm. And we then surrounded – Well, we'll have to
0: check in with you and find out the future of ChenMed. He's the chief executive, Dr. Chris Chen. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash Lens. Let's take a look at Canada. Canada because they are our neighbor to the north, but also because President Donald Trump in a speech, was promising to find a solution to a trade dispute with Canada that, uh, well, has left many dairy farmers in Wisconsin and New York without a market for their product. So um, let's find out more from Joe Light. He is our financial uh, regulation reporter. And uh, this is not necessarily about regulation. I wanted to just bring in the Canada issue because uh, when we talk about home building uh, it's interesting how the world gets connected very quickly. And I'm wondering, Joe, if you can just kind of describe what, what is all going on here and um, maybe just bring in current events.
1: Yeah, sure. So, the um, a- a- as you mentioned, Trump... Talked to the dairy community yesterday, and I, I'd been doing some reporting on uh, Canada's imports of softwood lumber to the United States, and it's kind of a great example of how even for you know kind of the most basic of commodities like wood, you have all sorts of different lobbying groups and interest groups on both sides of the border, um, with thousands of jobs at stake, uh, you know, fighting each other for a share of the U.S. market. So in the case of lumber, you know, this is a dispute that's been going on for. Uh, more than three decades, Canada imports about five billion dollars of lumber into the U.S. That's in that's in U.S. dollars, and it's a trade dispute that maybe not many people in the United States have heard of, but it means hundreds of thousands of jobs in certain communities, communities in Oregon, communities in in British Columbia. So, tell and, us about it. Yeah, yeah. So, so the so basically, Canada subsidizes its lumber industry. Most of the timberland in Canada is owned by provincial governments. They charge a fee to timber producers to cut the trees down. and As a result, um, U.S. companies say that Canadian producers are able to sell their lumber in the United States at depressed prices. Which which they say costs American American jobs costs lumber companies profits and so as soon as next week the U.S. government might be imposing uh, huge tariffs on Canadian lumber imports and the threat of that has driven lumber prices up by uh, by more than twenty percent since the uh, since the election and and part of that's because you know Trump has talked very t- uh, tough on trade with Canada and. Uh, and, you know, American producers and Canadian producers and the lumber market is expecting those tariffs to, you know, and a new deal to come in uh, pretty tough.
0: So tell us about the price of lumber right now and what are the implications for businesses, for the lumber companies?
1: So the the price of lumber, it's it's gone up 24 percent since uh, uh, that's as of the close uh, yesterday since the um, uh, since, since the election and for uh for a typical US home the home builders say that's added about $3000 to the uh to to the cost of a home so so you you kind of have two sides here in the US you have the people who buy the lumber and the people who sell the lumber the people who buy the lumber they want to keep these lumber imports uh cheap so so they 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 don't want to see the the US uh in, impose these uh impose these tariffs the people who sell sell the lumber you know big timber companies like uh, Weyerhaeuser, which actually has some, uh, uh, they, they've got some uh, force in Canada as well as the U.S., but most, mostly in the U.S., uh, lo- local lumber companies in, in places like Oregon. How wide is yeah. the
0: gap between uh, Canadian lumber and uh, U.S. lumber?
1: So, so the the tariffs that they're that they're hoping to so the the lumber market it's a it's a Canadian lumber and U.S. lumber is competing with each other, right? So the, Cause we, so the you know because it's yeah. traded, right? I mean, yeah, what are we talking it's traded, about right? it,
0: right? It's up uh, three three point six uh, today, right? And, but I've been looking; I'm going back all the way to May of of last year, and you're right; it's up. Uh, the price is up more than forty percent.
1: Right and, and and so Canadian Canadian US lumber is always competing so they're selling for about the same price the 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 difference here is that the the cost of lumber of producing lumber in Canada US companies say is much lower so the tariffs that um we're the US is inspect, uh, expected to impose uh, as soon as next week or starting next week could run uh, run between 30 and 40% um according to some analysts and the impact of that would be To make U.S. companies much more competitive, at least in their eyes, and to make Canadian companies much less competitive, which could result in, you know, mills closing in Canada, perhaps mills opening in the U.S., and the U.S. market share of the lumber market uh, rising.
0: So that would benefit companies, obviously, that have these operations in the United States.
1: That's right. Yeah. So 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 the, this is all this is all about the U.S. market share versus the uh versus the Canadian market share for, for the lumber producers for the home builders. You know they're so frustrated by the uh, quickly rising costs of lumber that you know they're already looking for sources of supply elsewhere. They sent a trade delegation to Chile in September. They've been talking to governments and producers in Sweden and Brazil. You know basically anybody who grows trees because they want to keep. What uh, about
0: alternatives to lumber?
1: Oh, for home builders, uh, you know that's. Uh, I I think we're, they're going to be framing homes with uh, with softwood lumber for uh, for quite a while. I, I don't think they're going to try to reinvent the uh, reinvent the home building process. Not, I mean, obviously,
0: yeah. but in, you know, in other uh, places, in other uh, places around the world, um, they use uh, other you know uh, materials to to do the build large scale housing.
1: Yeah, and and you know one of the points that the uh, the t- timber producers uh, make is that that lumber you know they say is it, it's not it's not the bulk of a cost of a home you know the bulk of a cost of a home comes in uh, you know labor costs and other materials land costs and and so they they're um, uh, the lumber lobby in the United States says they're you know at least somewhat you know mystified that the home builders are fighting so hard against uh, against these tariffs. But, you know, all, already home builders are competing against um, against existing homes with new homes. And so it's, it's difficult for them to pass the costs on to buyers. So this, this rise in lumber costs eats directly into their profits.
0: Thanks very much for joining us. Joe Light. Hey, Joe, what's your Twitter handle? It's uh, at Joe Light. That's all you need to know. Our financial regulation reporter joining us from Washington. Home builders could be losers in an early test of Donald Trump's trade policy. High yield. Well, if you're looking for high yield, what does that mean these days? High yield was up nearly 3% as of the end of February. And then it stumbled. Well, let's find out more from Ken Monaghan. He is the head of global high yield at Amundi Smith Breeden. They help to manage $10.9 billion, and they're based in Durham, North Carolina. Ken, thanks very much for being with us. Why don't you first just explain a little bit about your role there, what you are actively doing, and then uh, tell us your perspective on what's happening with uh, with yields right now for uh, these specific types of bonds.
4: Yeah, hi, Tim, and thanks for asking me to join you today. Um, I'm focused on the global high-yield markets, so that includes not only the U.S. high-yield marketplace, which we're all familiar with, but also the European high-yield market as well as emerging market corporate debt. So you're looking at a marketplace which is approximately 2.2 trillion dollars of which about 65% of that is us high yield about 25% is europe and about uh, the remainder is uh, is em corporates so that's that's what my focus is and i've been doing this for a long time with more gray hair than i care to count
0: <laughs> okay all right well well maybe all right so so share some of your wisdom with us right now <laughs>
4: Well, as you mentioned, I said we had a we had a pretty strong rally coming into February. The market was up quite strong, and then kind of petered out in, in March. And I think that there were a couple of headwinds we were experiencing. Certainly, one of them uh, was in the retail side of things. Obviously, there's been a lot of headline news, both for investment grade companies as well as high yield companies like J. Crew, for example, and Sears, um, regarding headwinds in the retail space. And then I think. Uh, What's
0: your prognosis?
4: Well, I, you know, I think that uh, that both are facing. A Ultimate restructurings. Uh, I think it's pretty much in the news already on J.C. Penny and dialogues taking place with creditors as it as we speak. Uh, with Sears, it's uh, it's been a longer term issue. They've been uh, deteriorating in quality for a long period of time, and uh, and uh, the equity uh, controlling equity shareholder, as you know, has been selling the crown jewels along the way uh, to keep the engine going. And uh, you know, I think ultimately that will uh, doesn't solve the problem that Sears of uh, of a deteriorating business.
0: Well, I'll just give you Sears. Uh, of course, uh, we know is uh, run and uh, owned by Eddie Lampert, right? Uh, hedge fund uh, manager, and well, uh, I'll just say investor at this point because I mean I'm looking at uh, Sears Holdings, and um, it's a one and a half billion dollar market cap right now.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, Pim, it's, that, it's like that old story or that old adage. When uh, a good business, uh, a bad business and a great management team to get, come together, it's usually the bad business that keeps its reputation intact. So I, I think that's what you're seeing here right now.
0: Interesting. Okay. So um, uh, where do you want to go? Because, you, you know, you said there's the $2.2 trillion and then, you know, you can slice and dice it really either by industry or by uh, currency. What's the best way to approach what is happening now? Because, I mean, we are late in in Cycle
4: aren't we? We are late in a cycle, but you know, I think you know, you we're not necessarily expecting the cycle to, to blow up the way uh, the way it, it did in 08 or 09. I think you know, we you, know, you talk to sociologists, they also they always talk about the concept of recency and primacy. Uh, the concepts being you know we we're most impacted or uh, by um, our most recent experience, which in this case obviously was the 08 or 09 recession, as well as the first one that we've had exposure to. I think the '08 or 09 one was a highly unusual one because it impacted the banking system in a major way. And obviously, we've had the banks recapitalized. In the U.S. in particular, there's some that are still need uh, work in Europe, but the U.S. banks have raised a lot of capital. So whatever headwinds we're expecting, talking about late in the credit cycle, uh, I don't think we're necessarily expecting it to be as as, 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 as broad a recession when it ultimately occurs uh, as uh, we experienced in eight or 09. You know, If you look back at previous recessions, you would typically find that they impacted you know one or two industries in particular so if you look back at the uh the 00230- Oh, two oh three 203 recession, um, that one was uh, much more focused on telecom. So there's certainly some sectors right now that, uh, that you know, would uh, cause concerns going forward and maybe the ones that will be most impacted, you know, if we have a recession in a year or two. Uh, retail is perhaps at the top of the list, but there's others like technology uh, that some are concerned about as well. You know, you can argue that oil and gas and metals and mining already had a recession of their own, you know, secular problems uh, with uh, kind of the period from late uh, 14 through the early part of last year.
0: Hm. I'm just digesting all that because you know that that I mean that's a that's an interesting scenario if it if it plays out that way. Yeah. You know, I think, look, uh, we look you think to, how many, in, how, how many interest rate increases do you think are on the table right now?
4: Well, it, it looks like it looks like two for this year, I think, is 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 is, is what our guess is. But and I, and I recognize that an increase in interest rates can impact uh, corporate credit. But I think the things that we get concerned about typically uh, coming into a recession or late in the credit cycle, we're not seeing as much of this time. So typically, you know. So is
0: there anything uh, worth buying right now? Yeah.
4: Well, I think that there is. I think, you know, we're, we're gonna, let's recognize that the benefit of the high yield marketplace is for U.S. high yield is that you're picking up effectively 1.7 basis points a day of, of current income. All so right. So g- I'll
0: give you 30 seconds. Go ahead.
4: Well, I, I, you know, I think that the, uh, the, uh, the answer from our perspective is, is, you know, we still think that there's opportunities in the steel sector, for example. Um, we're ultimately looking for opportunities in retail. We recognize that there's going to be the proverbial throwing the baby out with the bathwater and there are retailers that are going to survive. Uh, you know, we look, Get, you know, L Brands, for example, is a perfect example of a very high-quality credit in a B space that could be investment-grade if it wished to be. Uh, they've done a better job of taking care of their shareholders than they have their bondholders, and those bonds are under pressure. At some point, they'll be interesting to buy.
0: Maybe not yet. Yeah, well, I'm I'm checking them on the Bloomberg and, uh, well, we'll have to see. Well, we're going to put them there and then, you know what, we'll have you back and we'll uh, be able to uh, sort of track the progress uh, of those uh, L Brands bonds. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Ken Monahan is the head of global high yield at Amundi Smith Breeden, helping to manage $10.9 billion. They're based in Durham, North Carolina.